All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another segment, uh, another podcast episode of The Compliance Guy. My name is Sean Weiss, and I want to thank each and every one of you for joining in and listening and taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy day uh, for all of us as healthcare professionals. But again, the purpose of our show is to bring you healthcare uh, subject matter experts, leaders in the industry, and individuals who can help to minimize the confusion that sometimes exists in a variety of different topics. And today is no exception. Uh, today, I am extremely honored and privileged to welcome David Glazer to the podcast. <clears throat> I have known David uh, for probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Uh, we have built a, a, a great friendship and uh, professional uh, relationship, uh, really more so over the last decade. Um, and I've come to really appreciate not only his uh, knowledge and his experience and expertise as a healthcare attorney, uh, but also his... Um, lighthearted approach that he sometimes brings to his uh, presentations and into his writing style on his blog. So real quick, before we get into our conversation today, let me just introduce David Glazer to all of you who are listening, who, uh, if you don't know David, which I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's pretty hard not to, considering the fact that David uh, is all over the place uh, between uh, his appearances on Rack Monitor or Monday Monitor, his uh, blog on the ortho uh, websites, and just his overall presence as a healthcare expert. But real quick, um, David is a shareholder in Fredrickson and Byron's Health Law Group out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is the co-founder of its Healthcare Fraud and Compliance Group. Uh, for those of you that don't know this, David has considerable experience in healthcare regulation and litigation, including voluntary disclosures, criminal and civil fraud investigations, overpayments, and reimbursement disputes. I've had the privilege of working with David on a couple of cases uh, as recently as this year, and I will tell you, uh, it's always a pleasure to be able to work with him, uh, especially on these attorney-directed uh, projects, because he's so good at giving clear direction so you're not going out on your own conducting an investigation bringing them back something and and only to find out that it's not what he wanted so uh i have a, a tremendous amount of appreciation for david's uh work style and his uh ability to convey a clear concise message um again if you're wondering where david uh focuses his attentions it's in clinics, hospitals, and other healthcare entities, helping them to negotiate the maze of healthcare regulations, providing advice about strategy, reimbursement, and compliance. Because again, David's goal is to explain the government's enforcement position and to analyze whether this position is supported by the law or represents government overreach. And I think um, this is the perfect topic for us to talk about the difference between uh, uh, the government's ability to enforce regulations, talking about uh, codes, acts, laws, 
or the Code of Federal Regulations, which I think CFR is part of what we're going to be talking about today, because our topic today is Incident 2. So with that said, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and spending just a little bit of time with me and really um, helping our listeners to understand the difference between fact and fiction when it comes to the Incident 2 billing provisions. Well, thanks so much for having me, Sean, and I'm glad that we're audio only so people can't see me blushing after your uh, ridiculously kind introduction. So thanks. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, thank you. So, you know, you and I have had lots of opportunities to discuss a variety of topics, uh, some controversial, some pretty black and white, vanilla, whatever you want to refer to them. But this is one where I think there's a, a, a lot of controversy because not only do I think there's, a, you know, a misunderstanding of what the guidelines actually say, uh, but there's a misunderstanding as to the application during investigations conducted by FBI agents or others uh, on behalf of the Department of Justice who may be considering a criminal uh, 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 case against a provider or an organization. So um, everybody has, I think, a general understanding of Incident 2, right? It's, it's, it's a service by which ancillary or auxiliary personnel can perform a service on behalf of a physician as if he or she performed that service themselves, but they have to be under supervision. But there's some fallacies that I think exist as well. And, and, and I want to pause there and, and kind of let you um, navigate the direction that we're going to go with this conversation. Sure. Well, and it's interesting because you, you, you were opening by saying that we would bring clarity to this. And, and I worried, are we going to bring clarity or merely add to the confusion, right? Um, so I think we'll offer some, some new ways of looking at this. I would say, I remember when I first learned what about Incident 2 when I was a baby lawyer, and I was super confused. It took me months to get my brain around it. And I think the first problem is the phrasing, right? Like, Incident 2 is a confusing term. But I think you described it really well. Like, if I were going to rebrand it, it would be services under a physician's supervision. That would be so much clearer, right? Um, but so I will dive in with my... I don't know if I, instead of instead of an overview of the basic principles, I'm going to dive in with my favorite misconception. Um, and so my favorite misconception is that most people think, oh, to bill incident two, you can't bill incident two when there is a patient who has a new problem. And I think almost everyone believes that if you have a new problem, you can't bill incident two. I, I used to include that in my slides, candidly, right? That was something I would have accepted as gospel. Absolutely. But, so this is, it actually, we'll take a step back for a moment. It is always important to remember the regulatory hierarchy, right? So at the top, we've got the Constitution. Doesn't come up much in health law, but it's there. Then we've got statutes. So things in the Social Security Act. And that's what sets up incident two. It's one of the Medicare benefits. You find it in 1861 S2. Then, as you alluded to, we've got the Code of Federal Regulations. And uh, incident two pops up in 42 CFR 410.26. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to include the citations, but I think it's important when we're 
when we're talking about this specific framework. Absolutely. And if I could, you know, what, you know, citing these things is so important because think about how many times you have somebody who's a, a compliance officer or an auditor or a practice manager that you're talking to <clears throat> who may be on the same page as you and they may have read the same things that you're talking about, not to the degree that you're describing them, but then they go back and they try to educate or convince their physician and the doctor says, show that to me in black and white. So I think you giving the citations is absolutely brilliant. So please, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you didn't interrupt. And, and, and also it's important because, you know, working with you, you've pointed things out. You, you've sent things to me and I'm like, gosh, I didn't know that, Sean. Thanks for sending that to me. And a key part of this dialogue and being effective is recognizing that you might not know the answer, right? And so the only way you can get to it is show me the rule. And so I, I, I routinely ask people, if someone says I'm wrong, I'm like, okay, cool. Just let's, let's talk about it. So now let's have, oh, so then after that, we've got the manuals. But an important thing to remember is that manuals aren't binding. And we know this from a few things. We know it from some court cases. Uh, we know it because even the Department of Justice, Rachel Brand, when she was, I think, the Associate Attorney General, I may have her title wrong, uh, she wrote a memo called, conveniently, the Brand Memo, explaining that if the government wants to bring an affirmative civil enforcement action against someone, they need to base it on a statute or a regulation. You can't base it on a manual alone. Right, you can't use de facto guidelines, I think, exactly. is, what, is what the manual uh, or what her memo actually says. Exactly awesome. correct. And so, so we're, well, I often look at the manuals, but it is important to remember when we do that, they're not binding. So let's look at the regulation in, in, WIT 410, uh, in 42 CFR 41026B. How does it describe Incident 2? So one of the things it says is that the services and supplies must be an integral, though incidental, part of the service of a physician or other practitioner in the course of diagnosis or treatment of an illness or injury. And I think a key, so a couple of things that leap out there. First, um, this is the language on which the no new problems is based. And you will notice what I did not say the word new problems, right? There's nothing there about new problems. Instead, it says it has to be in the course of diagnosis or treatment of an injury or illness. The other point, and this is a super, super important one, is it talks about the course of diagnosis or treatment, not just treatment. And if in fact you couldn't do a new problem, or, or new problems are diagnosis, right? And I think the theory here is you can't diagnose incident two, but the regulation clearly says that you can. Now, that isn't our only port. So let's, having now, this is where I become a hypocrite, right? So I said, we don't rely on the manuals, but let's look at what the manual says. So the manual, which is the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual. And so if you go into chapter 15 and then dig into section 60.1b, it says, that a service or supply could be considered to be incident to when furnished during a course of treatment where the physician performs an initial service and subsequent services of a frequency which reflect his or her active participation in and management of the course of treatment. So similar to the regulation, although they mysteriously drop the reference to diagnosis, just disappears. 
Right. So here's a real world example. A patient is receiving chemotherapy. In the course of the chemotherapy, their blood counts drop and they get an infection and they come in. Is that a new problem? And I think we would both agree it is a new problem, right? Something that wasn't there before. Um, is that part of the course of treatment? And I, at least, would say yes. I don't know, Sean, would you? I mean, to me, that feels very much like a course of, of the treatment. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you because I look at that and I say, you know, is that a late condition or late effect of the patient's condition and or treatment? So, yeah, a blood infection or or something that exacerbates the patient's condition because, again, it's it's caused by the chemotherapy treating the cancer, at least in, in, in my opinion it is. So I would say, absolutely, I agree with you 100%. Now, I don't know. I can't point to something and say, here's the definition of course of treatment, right? There's nothing in the federal regulations. There's not even anything in the manual. So I'm kind of using, and I'm not a doctor. Right. I'm using my best guess. And if someone wants to attack my position, I think the best way to attack it would be to say, nope, sorry, it's not part of the course of treatment. But that's the argument I think someone would have to make. Um, so, so the new problem thing is out there. I, I think you, uh, you've noted a, uh, there's a Medicare contractor, I think, that has an opinion on this, right? Yeah, absolutely there is. And, and it's interesting because um, I sent that to you uh, earlier on in our conversation, I think it's the uh, Mac for um, Region JE, um, and you know, real quick to cite that it's actually under the criteria section, and it's number three. And, and what it specifically says is, "quote Billing incident to the physician: the physician must initiate treatment and see the patient at a frequency that reflects his or her active involvement in the patient's case." Now, I want to pause for just a second on that. Because I think this is where having a clear policy in your organization about incident two is so important because it's it's very subjective, right? What is what is a frequency? What does it mean by a frequency that reflects his or her active involvement in the patient's case? Is that once a year? Is it every six months? Is it every third visit, every fifth visit? So I think that's where individuals have to have clarity in their policies. But to make sure that you don't do it to the extent that you pigeonhole or bind yourself to doing something that either you've not educated your clinicians on or they are not in agreement with you to say, I, I don't agree that that would be an appropriate frequency. It, it, it should be, you know, whatever it is. But to your point, but it goes on to say, this includes, to your point right here, this includes both new patients and established patients being seen for new problems. The claims are then billed under the physician's NPI, end quote. It's, and I, I so this is Neridian, and I think Neridian is wrong, and this is an important thing. So there are a few points to make here. One, right, uh, you and you were describing kind of what my goal is. You said that it's to describe the government's enforcement position and then whether I think it's overreaching. This is a perfect illustration of it, right? And a reasonable organization may say, look, it's not worth fighting City Hall on this, right? We're just gonna say, we're not gonna, we're gonna do the new problem thing because everyone says it and we don't wanna fight about it. And I get that. And that is a reasonable position to take. 
Right. I would say a couple of things. First, if you choose to take that position, though, don't say it's the law because you want to preserve your ability to fight about it, right? So make it clear and be direct and say, look, we don't think this is the law, but we know the government takes this position and we're going to choose to follow it um, so that you don't get hoisted on the, uh, your own petard of being compliant. Um, you raised a couple of questions, Sean, that I've always struggled with. I don't have a good answer to. Like, how often does the doctor need to see the patient? And I have no clue. Um, and that's hard for me, and it makes it hard to give advice because it's completely arbitrary. And I don't know if the doctor needs to come in weekly, monthly, yearly. And that lack of clarity is both a positive and a negative. It's a positive in that it lets you make arguments. Yep. It is a negative in that it always creates the opportunity for you to be audited. And one of the questions is how risk adverse do you want to be? That's a great point. And, you know, the other question that always comes up is the, the definition of immediately available. Um, again, you know, there is no clarity on this. There's nothing that says, you know, you have to be within 30 seconds of getting into the room or within a minute of getting into the room. It just says you have to be immediately available. And I think the closest thing that I've seen to that addresses, you know, um, immediately available. And I think it's in chapter 15 in section 60, when it starts talking about hospital services in that immediately available means that the physician has to be in same proximity as to the non-physician practitioner reaching a patient's room to be able to render the care. But I, again, it's it's arbitrary, it's subjective, and it and it creates a lot of problems to give advice. So you've identified th another one like we've been both struggling with for 20 years, right? So here, I'll tell you, the, the first Medicare, no, sorry, the second Medicare appeal I ever dealt with was on this issue, and it was an orthopedic surgeon who had a clinic on the fifth floor, and the physical therapy was in the basement, and the question is, could it be incident two? And we convinced the administrative law judge that the answer was yes. But here are the various data points that we know. So first, we do know you've got to be in the office suite. Right. What the heck does that mean? Um, here, I'm going to just briefly read from something that was in the Federal Register on January 9th, 1998. So uh, I'm having a hard time with math here, but that's 22 years ago, 23 years yeah. ago. Yeah. It wasn't adopted. So... I don't think it's binding in any way because this is from a proposed rule. This is the preamble. So what CMS commented about a proposed rule and the proposed rule wasn't adopted, but it's still some interesting reading. So we're not proposing that there must be any particular configuration of rooms for an office to qualify as an office suite. However, direct supervision means the physician must be in the office suite and immediately available. Thus a group of contiguous rooms should in most cases satisfy this requirement. And I'm pausing for the, in most cases, like in not most in all. cases, should. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have been asked whether it would be possible for a physician to, re to directly supervise services furnished on a different floor. Now, I'm interrupting to just say, I would say, sure, as evidenced by my fifth, but let's keep going. We think the answer would depend upon individual circumstances that demonstrate the physician is close at hand. The question of physician proximity for physician referral purposes, as well as incident two purposes, is a decision that only the local carrier can make based on the layout of each group of offices. For example, 
a carrier might decide that in certain circumstances, it's appropriate for one room of an office suite to be located on a different floor. Well, holy Toledo, right? So, what? No wonder it's confusing. And so what that would suggest is that you might get a different answer in California than you do in Florida. And that's not how a national program should work, right? Yeah, that's problematic. Super bad. So if there's a reason people are confused, the people who wrote this are confused, right? Yeah. And I think one of the other things, because you brought it up, you were talking about your second administrative law judge hearing where you were able to convince the ALJ to your position on this. You know, um, for for other attorneys who are listening or for individuals in their organizations who are actually handling the appeals process, keep in mind that even though, you know, an, an ALJ may see something in a certain way, whether it's for the carrier's benefit or for the appellant's benefit, these are always de novo hearings, meaning that the ALJ is not bound to any prior uh, 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 opinion rendered by another ALJ, which is problematic, right? Because it, it, it doesn't allow for precedent to be set. It doesn't allow for us to be able to make an argument to be able to s- cite a specific case to say, this is how the judge ruled, and here's the fact of law that they ruled on, because the, the ALJ is going to say to you, um, this is a de novo case. I'm not bound to that. So I can I can read it and interpret it any way that I want. And that's really problematic, right, David, for attorneys like yourself, because, you know, you could have the best possible argument. You could have had five prior ALJ rulings all go in your favor. And now you have a new judge or an attorney adjudicator who may not be as initiated as prior judges to these topics who now gives a completely different opinion and doesn't interpret the rule the same way that you do. That's the problem with the Medicare appeals process at an ALJ level. I mean, would you agree? Totally agree. It's a super important point. So, Sean, I realize you kind of invited me at the beginning to give an introduction on Incident 2, and I stupidly didn't. And so maybe I should take one second to just because I dove into the weeds. And so I want to step back because I'm sure some people here are like, What the heck is really Incident 2? And so here are the basic principles that you need to have in order to bill Incident 2. So first one, the the physician has to be paying the expense that is associated with the ancillary person. And this doesn't come up too much, but like if a hospital says, here, take our nurse practitioner and you can use them, that would be a problem. And actually, heck, you'd probably have a kickback issue there if the doctor was getting it for free. So that doesn't come up much, but that's the first kind of element. Um, the physician has to be the providing the medical direction. Once again, that's rarely an issue. The next one is the one we spent a lot of time talking about, that the physician has to direct the course of treatment. So we won't rehash that. Um, the next one is that the service has to typically be done in an office. So no brain surgery. And then the next one is really a trap. I fell into this trap in the 90s. And in fact, I wasn't the only one. Medicare contractors were confused about this in the 90s. But the service can't be in a hospital or a skilled nursing facility. There is a federal regulation that specifically says you can't do incident two in the hospital. And I can make this extra confusing because all kinds of hospital services are covered as incident two, 
but it's a different kind of incident too. And I'm sort of even sorry I'm saying this because it's so confusing and mushy. Right. Then you've alluded to the um, the fact that the doctor has to be in the office suite, right? And so we don't know exactly what that means, but there has to be a doctor in the office suite. And then the last one, and this was a change in like, I don't know, 2001 or 1998, a long time ago, but in my legal career, because I'm old, um, the services have to be billed under the supervising physician. And this one's crazy yes. because you and I, let's say you and I are doctors in a practice together and I see a patient and I order chemotherapy and then I go to lunch and you're around. So you're the person providing the supervision because you're in the suite and the patient's going to get a bill that says Sean Weiss on it. That's right. And they've never seen you. Well, I mean, they might have, but they might not have. And they may have never even heard of you. And they're going to get this bill with your name on it. And I think this is crazy, but it's it, that one's in the regulations. Yeah, I think that falls under the clinic setting, right? Where the ordering physician does not necessarily have to be the physician providing the supervision of the services when they're rendered. It could be billed by any physician in the group practice. Exactly correct. So anyone can do the supervision, and then it's the supervisor who's bills. And that's, to me, super counterintuitive. Now, an important point I would make, let's say you screw this up, and it's easy to screw up. You will have broken a federal regulation, but I would say you don't need to refund the money. And the reason I would say that comes out of a wholly different place, but there's a, a manual provision that says if you violate Medicare's reassignment rules, which is billing in the name of the wrong doctor. So kind of what we talked about here, where we should have billed under you, Sean, but we bill under me. It isn't an overpayment. And since it's not an overpayment, you don't need to refund. Let me ask you, would, and I've often thought about this as an argument to this topic that we're, we're on right now. <clears throat> would reciprocal arrangements be part of the argument that you could make? Because, you know, we have, there's no requirement legally for us to have a contractual relationship between two doctors covering for each other. But the fact that, you know, it's a reciprocal agreement. So when you go to lunch, I cover for you. When I go to lunch, you cover for me, sort of what you're talking about. I mean, would reciprocal arrangements fit there? And if so... Would we need to put the modifier on there to indicate a reciprocal arrangement? I do think, uh, I think reciprocal arrangements would work. Um, it's, that would be a way to get there. One of the cool things, it's kind of the same principle. So if you fail to put the modifier on, we're in exactly the same place, which gotcha. is, it's, it's not an overpayment. Um, okay. And so I think that is an option. I think it's an astute option. The good news is you just wouldn't have to refund. Gotcha. So another another aspect that comes up dealing with Incident 2, as if we haven't already uh, had enough problems talking about Incident 2 billing, is something called the impossible day or improbable day. And, you know, I know you've run into this and, and we sort of started having a conversation about this and, and, and I want you to share that with our viewers. But, you know, um, I think part of the problem 
that prosecutors run into with these cases. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Part of the problem that they run into is reliance on investigators who may not necessarily have the foundational understanding for these guidelines, for these um, regulations, if you will, that we're talking about right now with Incident 2. And as a result, they don't understand how these things are applied in practice. And as a result, they look at a physician who has 18,000, 20,000, 30,000 RVUs in, in, you know, and they look at that and they say, there's absolutely no way this could happen because the definition of a 99213 is that it typically takes 15 minutes of time to render this service. And I think they get hung up on the AMA's definition of time without recognizing time's insignificant, right, prior to 2021. Correct. With the change of the E&M documentation guidelines, right? Because we always relied on the, the key components, the history, the exam, and the medical decision-making. So three of three for a new patient, two of three for an established patient, and it didn't matter which two of three you had as long as it was in conjunction to medical necessity. So I, I don't want to take away from your conversation because I think some of the points that you were making prior to us getting on our podcast today were really, really valid. Talk, talk a little bit about you know, the case that you had with the cardiologist. Yeah, so the impossible day is such, because there, there are really so many ways that what appears to be an impossible day can be possible. So you were started this off with incident two, right? So perhaps there are, uh, there could be two or three nurse practitioners or physician assistants who are doing work and the physician is getting RVU credit for them. So that's one factor in the impossible day. And then you hinted at the other one, which is, so the typical time, usually when someone talks about the impossible day, they're doing it off of typical times. Um, and in fact, you I, I bet are more familiar with this than I. There's more than one set of times that go with the codes. And I'm, I know the CPT typical times, but there are a variety of other times too. So I'm going to focus on the CPT ones for a moment. Please. Um, so let's, let's take a, uh, if you can do a 99213 in five minutes, and I have watched a doctor do that, um, you're going to, if you work eight hours, you'll have 24 hours of credit because the typical time is 15 and you can, in 15 minutes, do literally three of those encounters. So you're going to get a three to one ratio. Um, so uh, I, the, the cardiologist I worked with had a huge number of RVUs. And when I first saw it, I thought there was no way on earth that those services had been done. And what we wound up doing is I sent, sat for a morning, we told the patients what was going on. I mean, what we said to the patients is that I was an observer watching the practice for the day. So that was true, not necessarily complete, but true. Um, and I sat in for a morning and watched the doctor do stuff. And so, for example, and he explained to me, all right, I walk in. The first thing I do, I look at the patient. I'm looking at their gait. I'm looking at their skin color. I shake their hand. Feel, is it warm? Is it cold? Is it sweaty? walks through all that stuff, right? Are they oriented? And he, he walks me through how in the, you know, in now that, that what I've described is a whole bunch of points that he's ascertained in 15 seconds, basically. And so I watched him do his spiel and he was getting a 99214 in a visit that was six or seven minutes. Now, did he have any chit chat with his patients? He did not, right? And the patients didn't expect any chit chat. He was all business. But it looked like he was billing 
Uh, oh, and he used NPs and PAs, right? And so the PA and NP would come in after and spend more time with the patient. Um, and so he's got a whole team running, which is how he had his 30,000 RVUs, but he was really doing the work. And so I think you've highlighted a really important point. Now, should you, as a, uh, a clinic, worry about someone who looks like they're doing impossible days? Absolutely. And you need to then bring you in, right? This is where you can come in and you can verify, is, that, is it happening? And that's really important to do. But um, sometimes the impossible day turns out to be totally within the realm of believable. And um, I, I, don't, I want to emphasize, I do think it's important to look at RVUs because right. if someone's got 30,000 RVUs, you darn well better check and you better make sure you're double check. Yeah, but I think the point that you're trying to make and that I'm trying to make is that it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And the, the, the problem that people need to be able to understand is, you know, a prosecutor is being fed information by an investigator and or through a whistleblower, you know, somebody who, you know, is, is providing information. Prosecutors are not coders. They're not billers. They're not compliance officers, right? They're not, they're not versed in the operational aspect of a medical practice or a hospital, right? These are individuals that look at statutes, laws, regulations, acts, to try to figure out if there's a, if, if there's a narrative that could be made to fit a potential violation that they could then prosecute or get somebody into a resolution agreement or into a settlement agreement or something like that, right? So the, the, the last point that I want to make about this, and I always try to make this point when, when I have uh, attorneys on my program, for those of you who are listening, if you are running into problems and you are continuing to use the attorney who's been your friend for 10, 15 years, who's handled your real estate transactions or other civil matters unrelated to healthcare, and now all of a sudden you get dinged for something and you think that that is the individual who, because they're an attorney, you should use them, you could wind up running into a lot of major problems. I have a doctor that came to me <clears throat> who went that path um, and wound up getting sanctioned, uh, was excluded from Medicare for 10 years. Uh, they, they hit him for a tremendous amount of money, confiscated his assets. My point is you utilize experts who are experts in the area that you have a problem. So if you're dealing with a healthcare issue, you get a healthcare-centered attorney. Not somebody who dabbles in it, but somebody who understands it. Because Medicare is like an octopus. There are so many tentacles coming off of you know, CMS in so many different directions. And the rules and, and the laws, the way that they're written in healthcare, are different than what I've seen for probably any other industry and they're so complex and we're so highly regulated as an industry. So David, with every single one of my podcasts, what I like to do in the closing moments is just ask our guests to give a takeaway message to our listeners. What are the things that they should be cognizant of and what are the things that they should be doing today after listening to you 
and your your outstanding uh, content and narrative on this complex topic. I think you brought a lot of clarity to it. What are the what are the risk mitigations that people can engage in immediately to start to figure out what risk do I really have with regard to incident two? So I'm going to answer that in two prongs. So first, I'll focus on incident two, and then we'll close close with a, a general observation. So on incident two, I think you want to you want to do a few things. So first, you want to make sure that you've always got a physician in the suite when someone is, is doing, and, and a way that you can demonstrate that there is always a physician in the suite when services are being billed under that physician's name. And um, that, that can happen in a few different ways. Um, and you know, obviously in a big practice, that's not gonna be as big a deal as in a little practice. So the second thing is review charts and see. So I think uh, you have talked to me about, uh, you know, kind of the requirement is charts need to be signed. There isn't an explicit requirement about charts needing to be signed, but the Noridian text you were alluding to before talks about a signature, right? The doctor has to sign the chart. That isn't a requirement, but it makes your life a heck of a lot easier. Certainly. Um, I think you want to have, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying certainly I agree with you. Uh, I think you want to make sure you've got a process to look at, at your charts and kind of back to your policy, is, is a doctor actually seeing this patient periodically? Uh, and then you want to educate people so they understand all of the elements that we've talked about. But so now let me back up to the more macro point. I think the biggest lesson might be always have an open mind in both ways, right? Like, um, I said something that I think a lot of people probably heard and went, David is crazy when I said, you don't need, you know, a new problem can still be incident to. And so if you hear someone say something that you think is wrong, you need to listen to it and then carefully consider it. Just because you've thought something for years and years and years doesn't mean it's right. And then it, but it goes both ways, right? If, if you're like, yeah, I think this is okay. And I've thought it was okay for a long time. You have to be open to this. And so I think maybe the main takeaway is if someone walks into your office and says, I think we have a problem, I think this doctor is billing incident too wrong, you might, some of us, and I would put myself in this camp, have an instinct to go, no, 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 it's okay, and to poo-poo and pat the person on the head. Don't. Listen. Um, and even if the person has complained 16 times before and you've looked at all 16 of those and those complaints were unfounded, the 17th time they come in, you still have to listen and figure it out. Awesome. Well, listen, this brings us to the end of our podcast today. Uh, I hope all of our listeners were able to glean some uh, takeaways from this uh, great uh, uh, amount of information that David was able to provide for us. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that uh, folks are going to take away from this and they're going to think about and they're going to ponder and they're going to, you know, they're going to struggle because this is the way we've always done it. This is what we've always been told as opposed to this is what the code of federal regulation says, or this is what, you know, you know, the, 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 the governmental overreach is in this situation as we started with. So again, 
David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time, your willingness to come on this podcast, because I know how busy of a practice you actually have. And I know that you also have your personal life as well. So taking time out to uh, spend it with me is is so greatly appreciated. Um, again, I hope that you will consider coming back onto the podcast down the road. Uh, there's so many things that you have a lot of uh, uh, great insight on and, you know, with the landscape that it is in healthcare, there's always uh, a lot of different things for us to be able to talk about. So thank you so much again for being on the show. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, hopefully welcoming you back down the road. Well, thank you. And thanks for setting this up. I think you're, it's great that you're educating so many people on such a wide range of uh, healthcare topics. So thanks. Awesome. Thank you. And folks, we'll be back with another segment. Uh, not too long from now. Stand by. <laughs>